0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. So one of the great blessings of living and working in this neighborhood is proximity to the Dominican House of Studies. The friars are always hospitable. They've been very generous in various ways with us at the USCCB. In fact, uh, one of uh, a Dominican friar is uh, a consultant on our committee, Father Dominic Legge. Um, They also have this fantastic initiative called the Thomistic Institute, which exists to promote Catholic truth in our contemporary world by strengthening the intellectual formation of Christians at universities, in the church, and in the wider public square. The people of the Dominican House and the Thomistic Institute really have a gift for teaching the Christian faith, and so today we're happy to welcome the prior of the Dominican House, Father Gregory Schnackenberg, to talk about the solemnity of Christ the King. Father Schnackenberg serves as an assistant professor in ecclesiastical history. He obtained his doctorate in history from Oxford. Father Schnackenford, thank you so much for joining us. Or Schnackenberg, not Ford. Thank you so much Close for joining enough, us. Yes, <laughs> Yeah,
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Uh, looking forward to it.
0: Well, first, you know, it may seem obvious because it's because of the name of the feast, it seems obvious what it's about, but can you just first give us very basic, like, what is the solemnity of Christ the King all about?
1: Sure. Well, like any uh, feast day in the Church's calendar, it has a number of different aspects, um, but in, it, in sort of a nutshell, in its most basic uh, meaning, it's a feast that celebrates Christ's universal dominion over all things, over all creation, that he reigns over all. Um, And that's true both because of who he is, um, that he is God, and so in his divine nature, um, all things are subject to him, all things were created through him, as the creed says, so he has power over all things. But it's also true because of what he's done as well. Um, He ransomed us on the cross, he purchased us, um, and so he is our king, um, both uh, through his nature and through his actions um, uh, as a man as well, as both God and man, our creator and redeemer. So the feast really celebrates that, that universal kingship, that universal dominion of Christ, um, which is also a celebration of the, the things he's done for us um, in his capacity as our redeemer as well.
2: Father, real quick, just a solemnity. What is distinct about Solemnity.
1: Sure. So in the church's calendar, um, we have different ranks of feasts. Uh, the church attaches different levels of importance uh, to different feast days, uh, which ones are sort of more primary uh, than others. And a solemnity is the highest rank of feast. So it's given prominence over other days in the uh, in the year. And we celebrate uh, the Feast of Christ the King, the solemnity of Christ the King, um, on the last Sunday in Ordinary Time. So it takes precedence even over a What would otherwise be just an ordinary uh, Sunday. A solemnity has the highest rank. It takes precedence over over everything else.
0: I mean, it's interesting to hear the way you describe what it's about, because I think the way most people would, if you just hear Christ the King, the main thing they probably think of is just, oh, well, Jesus is so powerful. Like, power is probably the first thing that's going to... But what you mentioned was sort of a lot of basic Christological doctrine, this, it's just that's a different way of probably—it might be different than how people think of it, that, like, Christ is king because he's God and man, because he's because he's ransomed us on the cross. That's probably a different angle than most people would.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously both are true, right? We can certainly affirm God's power, God's glory, God's uh, dominion um, in virtue of his uh, divinity, um, and that's definitely something we want to affirm, you know, God's omnipotence, um, and that he guides all of creation in his providential care, and so Christ's kingship uh, and lordship over the universe, you know, definitely embraces that. Um, but I think we also then want to affirm that he has a particular relationship with us and those in the church uh, who he has redeemed and saved, and so he's our Lord in that way as well. Uh, it's it's both and here. Mm-hmm. Well, now this may seem like a funny
0: question to ask. Um, and so, so, I want to put it the right way. Um, I think, I think there's a sense in which Catholics can understand um, the idea that Jesus is l- the Lord over all things. Um, but we just said like it's a solemnity, so it's not just a feast day. Right. Um, so this, so this is really important feast day. Um, but then, why does something that seems like such an obvious fact need a feast? And I guess the to to explain what I'm saying like um, I don't think we have a feast of Christ the healer although obviously Christ is is a healer as well as a king or there is a feast I believe of Christ the priest but it's not really something most people would even know about um, so why does this one kind of like take it seen as so important this this office or this of Christ, Christ as king, you know, he's talking about as priest, prophet, and king. Why is this one so important that it deserves a solemnity?
1: I think uh, there's a couple of ways to to answer that question. One I would say is that the church tends to emphasize things that are uh, overlooked or, or misunderstood in the popular mind, and so I think the kingship of Christ is one of those things where we might affirm it sort of notionally, I don't think many Catholics would disagree with the idea of applying the title of king to Christ in some way, but it may not really be something that um, is sort of a living reality in every Christian's life. Uh, It's something that might need to be um, understood better so that we can uh, sort of put into practice what that teaching means in in the human person. Whereas I think that when it comes to Christ's priesthood or Christ as healer, people obviously turn to Christ for healing all the time. That's something that probably doesn't need quite as much uh, elucidation for people to kind of get that. Um, but when it comes to Christ's kingship, that might be something that's sort of misunderstood or marginalized in, in the practice of the faith at different levels. And so the church tends to want to stress things that might not be getting the attention they, they probably should. And I certainly think when the feast was instituted um, by Pius XI, that's something he felt that um, this was a teaching that needed to be to be stressed at that time. And so that's how it ended up on the calendar in its present feast, although it certainly has a lot of ancient echoes in the, in the scriptures and um, in earlier periods as well.
2: Well, and I think, you know, people tend to look at, you know, oh, the king, what is the, well, there's, we have the king of England and we have, mm-hmm. so, you know, it, now my understanding is the feast was it's instituted in 1925. 25, yes, 25, yeah. 25. Okay. So and you know at that time we had, you know, there were and I think it was the modern day kind of vision of there were kings, right? Is crum, was beginning to crumble a little bit, right? But Absolutely, like when you yeah. think of king, you think, um, you know, oh, on a throne with a crown, a very distant kind of. But I think what you're saying is the church really wanted to help people understand. No, a king is really a servant of his people. He is looking out for them. He is he has dominion over them, as you said. But um, so it seems to me, I mean, would you say that that's that's kind of the direction the church might have been going in is like, no, really, let's look at what it means the Catholic perspective of what it means to be king. Christ is king
1: right um, and that there's a relationship there between each individual and Christ as their Lord and he seeks to to kind of guide us and lead us to good things to provide for us the way a, a good a king who's also a servant uh, would do so um, and to to help us uh, lead us towards uh towards the good and that he can give direction to us as individuals and society um, to try to build a, you know, a kingdom of justice and peace, as the, as the preface for Christ the King says. Um, so yes, I think that, that relationship with Christ as our Lord um, was something that uh, needed to be kind of brought out, particularly in that time, uh, particularly in this period between the wars, where, um, as you say, monarchy was crumbling, which is true, but also in a lot of ways, society was just very disoriented and. Religion was in many ways being marginalized or attacked in a lot of different contexts. You have things like the rise of fascism and and also the rise of communism, which was explicitly atheist, all kind of happening in that period. And so Christ's kingship was sort of being marginalized as religious faith itself was being sort of pushed out of society. Um, So this was a way of kind of emphasizing, no, Christ does have a place in each person's life and and in the culture as a whole and in society as a whole.
0: Could you say a little bit more about, you know, how how it came to be instituted um, as a feast? you said it's like a relatively recent addition to the calendar, um, but then you're also pointing out that it has echoes in in church church history and different. Maybe not the feast day itself, or maybe maybe the feast day itself does have some echoes in church history. Like, how does because it, it seems like I don't know that may it may be surprising to a Catholic to hear like. Oh, the the bishops can just look, and the pope could just say, "This stuff is happening in society, so we're going to institute a feast day to address it." Um, what I mean, like right. that seems sort of, or or were there were there some kind of precedence for it before for something like that
1: before? Well, I think the. The application of the language of Christ as king has uh, sort of deep roots in the scriptures, right? Kingship is all over the scriptures uh, in different ways. Um, if you just uh, go back to the early history of Israel, um, at the beginning, God is their king, right, in a very very direct way. Uh, and the people at a certain point want to have a king like the, like the other nations around them. And God uh, permits that, but he also sort of warns them that, you know, there's... Uh, reasons why this might not entirely work out for for your good. And then you have this whole history of sort of kingship in Israel um, with kings that are sort of a mixed bag. Some are very good, some are not so good, uh, and some are certainly uh, prefigurements of Christ in in their goodness. So uh, King David, King Solomon, and and so forth. Uh, They are not without their flaws, but they prefigure Christ in some way. And then when we get to the the New Testament, of course, Christ is um, quite... Clearly adored as king uh, by you know the magi from the moment you know shortly after his his birth, and is uh, described as a king, um, you know at the end of the New Testament in the the book of Revelation at the end of all time, but also in Christ's own parables he makes references to to the king who will bless those who are faithful and so forth, um, and that points back to himself. So the language of kingship uh, is something that develops quite richly in the scriptures and is applied to Christ. So when it came time um, to sort of look at how Christ was being understood in society in the time of Pius XI and the sort of marginalization of his, his place, Pius did institute a, a new feast, but it was a new feast that wasn't sort of a new doctrine or a new teaching, it was simply sort of taking from the, the tradition something that was already there and just making it a little bit more explicit just like we have other feasts uh, in the year um, of things that are that are in the scriptures or in the tradition, whether it's the Marian feasts like the Immaculate Conception or if it's something like the Feast of the Sacred Heart, all of these things are part of the deposit of faith. They're, they're found in the tradition, but they they find new expression in the liturgical uh, year, and um, that's that's something that can develop. Well, speaking of the liturgical year, you
0: know, one thing that's sort of interesting about this feast is that when it was uh, first instituted, it was connected more with the feast with All Saints. Um, yeah, and and even still, like on the old right, that that's where it still falls on the calendar. The, but most Catholics are going to celebrate it on at the end of Ordinary Time. And I think there are different reasons for pl- for the different placements. Um, so, which I think it's helpful or kind of illuminating it might be to kind of think about why. So can you tell us, like, what what's kind of the rationale behind the two different, the different placements?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of thing, because it shows you how the same feast can have sort of different emphases. Mm-hmm. So originally, when Pius XI established the feast, he put it on the last Sunday in October, and he said that that was um, appropriate because it was coming near the end of the liturgical year, and so it sort of crowned the mysteries of Christ's life that were already celebrated. Um, but he put it before the Feast of All Saints, and so it um, sort of highlighted Christ's kingship both over the church in the world at present, um, with then following uh, being followed by the Feast of All Saints where Christ reigns in heaven over those who have been, been glorified. So it sort of was put between the two. Um, and so, yeah, the sort of the church militant on one side, the church triumphant on the other side um, as kind of to use classical terms, with the, the Feast of Christ the King in the middle, October was also a month um, associated with a lot of events that weren't that were kind of anti-clerical, really. You know, you had the Russian Revolution had taken place in October in 1917. That uh, meant the rise of Marxism, and um, you know, which was officially atheist. Uh, the fascists had come to power in uh, Italy in October of 1922. Um, And also, although Pius never mentions these things, and nor does he mention the fact that um, at the end of October, uh, some Protestants celebrated Reformation Sunday, uh, which was also a kind of, in some circles, a kind of obviously challenge to the the Catholic faith. So October was one of those months that had a lot of significance, and having a Feast of Christ the King in that period gave Catholics something to celebrate uh, from their own tradition and to look towards um, their understanding of Christ in the world. So it kind of fit all of these different um, needs and purposes. After the Second Vatican Council, however, uh, they kept the Feast of Christ the King, but they decided to put it at the end of the um, season of ordinary time, the, the end of the liturgical year, because what they wanted to stress there was Christ's uh, eschatological kingship. That is to say that at the end of all time, uh, at the resurrection of the dead and so forth, Christ will reign over all things. And so it looks to the completion of, of Christ's work uh, in the world with the, um, the kind of the final consummation of all things. So that kind of eschatological focus was stressed a little bit more after the, after the council. So we can kind of see the logic of that in the present liturgical calendar. I don't think that's incompatible with what Pius was trying to do, which was also to stress the role of Christ's kingship here and now, but the, the two accents kind of we see in the different calendars uh, sort of stressing different things.
2: So you highlighted um, the, the mention of Christ as king you know, all throughout—just the, the, the concept of kingship all throughout Scripture, right? And I was just reading the other day the Magnificat, and, mm-hmm. you know, the Blessed Mother talks beautifully about the Lord casting the mighty down from their thrones. And I thought, oh, hey, what is—so I guess my question is kings in, a, in, in human terms are always, um, in Christ the king, certainly male— Right. So could you just talk a little bit about um, the relationship between Christ as king, but also his queen, the Blessed Mother? Like, so especially as a woman, you know, I really look at, um, you know, I consider Christ my king, and am I his queen? Am I his princess? You know, so could you give some guidelines a little bit on how, um, particularly in light of the Blessed Mother, or for women, like how in particular, we we could relate to Christ the king, or what in particular this uh, feast solemnity could, um, you know, shed some light on our relationship with Christ.
1: Sure. Well, um, I mean, classically, queens in their own way participated in the, the kingship of the, uh, of the king. And so we can speak of Mary as uh, queen uh, participating in some way in Christ's own kingship, that uh, the, the uh, dominion, power, influence, and so forth that he holds um, as a good and, and perfect king um, in some ways she shares in and she can also um, intercede on behalf of the uh, of those who come to her uh, seeking aid and supplication and so forth. Um, Mary is uh, in her queenship a kind of perfect representation of what it means to um, to reign with Christ as one who is um, both his servant but also is the great beneficiary of his many many gifts and graces and in some sense we're We're called to look to her then as a model in the church, um, because the church is uh, taken as Christ's as Christ's bride, and so has a kind of participation in his kingship um, as his bride. And all of us share in the royal or priestly or kingly dignity of Christ in our own life. You know, as, as priest, prophet, and king, Christ shares that with us in some way through our baptism. And so, when we exercise kind of good guidance, dominion over our own words and actions and thoughts and, and build up the kingdom, we are acting in a, in a kingly way, um, and so we share in that too. And Mary, as the um, kind of model of a perfect queen, is a kind of good example of what that looks like in the, in the human person.
2: So I, I can be king too, king-queen. You know. e- exactly. The same, the same
1: <laughs> um, yeah, royal dignity that flows from Christ is shared and extended to every baptized person. Uh, and Mary kind of shows us how that how that's done best.
0: Well, you know, every year, one of the resources that we provide at the, from the USCCB, from our office, from Committee for Religious Liberty, is we provide some commentary on the readings every year, on the lection, some mm-hmm. lectionary notes, and it's kind of a fun exercise to to look every year because you really see how the different readings look at these different facets of Christ's kingship, or look at different types of imagery, just as you were saying, the, the way the, the placement of the feasts in the calendar, kind of look at different elements, mm-hmm. different yeah. aspects, the, the different kinds of readings to do this, um, is really striking this in this year, it's, it's all about, it's all using the shepherd imagery. And this idea that pretty much my understanding is that ancient Near Eastern cultures pretty much all talked about good kings as shepherds. Yes, yeah. And so so then the Old Testament naturally is using that type of language. And there are just some interesting things in looking at that. I mean, one of the things, and in, in actually in St. Saint, Saint Thomas Aquinas commenting on the Shepherd psalm, um, Psalm 23... Um, which is the psalm for this year's—in for on, in the readings this year, the where it says the Lord is my shepherd, in most of our translations, he was relying on a version of Scripture where it said the Lord rules over me. Being a shepherd is, t- is a way of ruling. Um, so anyway, uh, th- but there are other different years they focus on different things. Christ as being preeminent, or, right. um, or Christ as the one who bears witness to the truth, or things like that. So can you comment on— How did the different readings reveal different aspects or facets of of Christ's kingship?
1: Sure. Uh, As you said, I mean, the language of shepherd and that uh, theme of the shepherd is closely associated with uh, the theme of kingship or royalty uh, in the Old Testament and in. in the New Testament, too, and is just in general uh, Near Eastern culture. That might seem a little foreign to us today, but it's, um, for the very reasons you mentioned, you know, very applicable. Uh, a shepherd guides his sheep, right? He takes care of them. He leads them. He helps uh, try to make sure they, they don't wander off and, and harm themselves. Uh, he leads them to uh, pastures and food and water and makes sure that they're provided for And so um, ancient Near Eastern culture saw that as also kind of a a reflection or a model of what a good king is supposed to do. He's supposed to watch out for for his people, for his flock, and and make sure they're provided for. He protects them from enemies. He um, makes sure they have the the things that they need, food and water, and so forth. So so Christ is, of course, uh, honored in this feast as Christ the king, but the language and imagery of the shepherd is used in the readings to draw out that relationship. And if we think of some Old Testament uh, kings as well, or people who exercised a kind of kingly authority, a number of them had experience as, as being shepherds. I mean, Moses uh, tended flocks, uh, Joshua did this, uh, and David was out uh, tending the sheep too. So um, we actually had examples of uh, kings and, and royalty in the Old Testament um, who were actually, in fact, shepherds. And Christ kind of fulfills that then as being both the good king and, and the good shepherd. And so all that kind of comes together in the readings this year. By the way, the, the Latin word for shepherd is pastor as well, so we take it to speak of the good pastor um, the same way. The other years, years, um, I guess it's B and C in our, our lectionary uh, cycle, bring out other aspects of Christ's kingship. Um, uh, in year B, I think it blings out particularly the idea that Christ's kingship is not from this world or of this world, that is to say it originates with God. It has a place in this world. It has a beginning in the life of the church, but it's not the same thing as a politically constructed kingdom. And we see Christ during his lifetime always eschewed that kind of um, purely worldly authority or the trappings of a purely worldly kingdom, because that's not what he was after uh, and also not what his mission entailed. His kingship comes from above, and so its place in the world is as something that's transforming the world, not constructed by it. And then we also have, very interestingly, the reading um, in year C that deals with the crucifixion, um, which is really a kind of great paradox that Christ reigns from the cross, that the cross becomes the throne from which um, he conquers death and and redeems the world. Um, And we have St. Paul's assertion that year uh, in the, the second reading, too, that Christ is the head of the body, the Church. And so we, we see that that kingship then is exercised already in its beginning in the world uh, through the life of the Church. Uh, and we participate in that, too, through our baptism, um, by which that, that kingship is extended to us in some way. So, yeah, the readings are very rich for this feast in each year, um, and they, they bring together a lot of different themes. And there's sort of endless homiletic material there uh, to keep priests busy, and I think to keep all the faithful busy, just kind of meditating on the different aspects of what Christ's kingship means and how it relates to other themes in the uh, the Old and New Testament.
0: One of the things, sorry, I'm take, going to take go in a little bit different direction, sure. but with yeah. one uh, one more qu- one question that I have is um, when you look at a lot of the imagery that is used in the church, like I mean, like stained glass windows and stuff like that. Um, he's almost always, de- that's almost always where you get the depictions of the Sacred Heart as well. Yes, yes. There's a strong connection between Sacred Heart devotion and Christ as King. I wonder if you could mind commenting on that or, or give some, uh, kind of explaining how that, again, because that doesn't seem intuitive, you know, why Christ's kingship and devotion to the Sacred Heart, why those things go together.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. When Pius XI established this feast, one of the things he encouraged the faithful to do was to have an annual consecration to the Sacred Heart uh, on this feast. And um, the idea that by sort of um, enthroning Christ uh, in our life or in our families, um, we recognize that he is king of our hearts, that he, he is the king who reigns um, in our deepest... Um, uh, uh, will in our minds and our, our uh, what guides and governs us, and uh, looking to His Sacred Heart um, is a way of expressing that devotion um, and that that orientation to Christ. And so, this was something that um, Pius XI encouraged, and it became uh, a common practice as a way of um, yeah expressing one's commitment to Christ uh, through His Sacred Heart on on this feast day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the two have been closely connected, really, from the from the beginning. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, the the last thing is just you know to ask you on something practical, like, what does it mean to acknowledge or to recognize these truths about Christ? What what does that mean for someone when they after when they leave Mass on the, the Sunday of the Feast of Christ the King? Um, how should they be trans- How should we be be changed in some way? Um, so that's one question. Another question, though, I think is, I think it's really, when it comes to feast days, I think that as much as possible, it's to try to, to recover a Catholic culture. You know, we need to f- celebrate things in our homes, and, and I, so I wonder if you have any thoughts or suggestions on how, even just like in one's home, how are there, are there traditions... Uh, this is such a new feast so the, you, you know it's not going to be like some some traditions that that different you know different groups have had of like well we always eat this kind of food on this on this day or whatever you know
2: thinking about crowns and tiaras right yeah. now <laughs> so, you know, yeah we have fun. a lot a of those, bling yeah, I mean, yeah we have
0: a lot of those things like for different feast days and i think that I, I just think that that's like that's how that's one of the ways you build up a culture is you have celebrations and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I wonder about any suggestions for ha- how to celebrate this feast day.
1: Okay, well, I'll loop back first just to what I said about the Sacred Heart, because there is a, a tradition of enthroning the Sacred Heart uh, or an image of the Sacred Heart in one's house uh, with one's family, and that's a way of saying that you know Christ reigns in this house in this family. Uh, to take a a piece of art of the Sacred Heart and to have that kind of enthroned and blessed. And there are little uh, prayers and rites and things that are available for that kind of devotion. So if uh, a Catholic family out there doesn't have a a picture of the Sacred Heart and would like to get one and have it kind of enthroned, that's something that they can do. I think coming out of Mass, um, at Mass, you know, it it is the the royal banquet. It is a celebration with Christ the King at the the King's house, uh, that royal banquet. And that's a wonderful thing, um, but it can't just stay in the church, right? It has to go out from there. Some parishes will do processions and things like that on the Feast of Christ the King. We're actually doing one uh, next door at uh, the Dominican House of Studies on the feast day, weather permitting, it can get a little chilly uh, Mm -hmm. in this part of the the country at this time of year. Uh, I think processions are actually a great way of expressing the fact that Christ's kingship, his reign, uh, the, the joy and peace that he brings to the world um, aren't just confined to the walls of a church building but they need to go out and uh, convert the world and embrace the world and and bring the good news to, to everyone so that's something that could be organized at, at a parish level but then I think um, you know each individual has to really uh, sort of appropriate this and try to recognize that the kingdom of God advances by his grace but that his grace works through us and so we bring, Christ's kingdom into everything we do, um, whether we're uh, working somewhere or we're um, raising a family or we're doing both or we're uh, just engaging in pleasant conversation with others. If Christ's kingdom is to to grow and to bring his peace and joy to others, that has to happen through us. And so I think that the deepest meaning of this feast is to both honor Christ for who he is, but then to also recognize that he wishes to also act through us in extending that king, that, that kingdom, you know, thy kingdom come as we pray in the Our Father, right? Um, and so I think if we take something of that feast day celebration and then are able to transmit that to the world, then it's it's done its job in the in the church's liturgical calendar.
2: Coincidentally, my sister-in-law, Emily Jaminette, runs the Sacred Heart Enthronement Network. So oh, that is okay, yes. one tool, resource okay. that people could go to for... Um, Resources on how to do that enthronement. By any chance, is
1: she out in Columbus, Ohio? She is. I, I know her well.
2: Oh, what a yes. coincidence! Yes, it's was, a uh, small little Catholic world, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yes.
1: Okay, that's. Uh, it is a small world, but I think she's doing wonderful work. And she so is. That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We did this actually at our parish. A group of families all, you know, prayed the novena, and maybe the litany to the Sacred Heart, like every day for a set amount of time, and then, then the I think everybody got their own image. Like they had to get it themselves. But then, and then the pastor went around to all the, on one Saturday and did all the prayers and everything. So we have it pretty prominently in our dining room the the Sacred Heart enthroned. So, um, so yeah, that I think that's definitely a practical thing. And I think, um, yeah, and I think it's very meaningful for our family. I love the procession idea, though. I'm always, I have a friend who's on this, too, who's always wants more processions, any occasion <laughs> for something like a, a procession, because it just brings everybody together in a special way, I think. I don't know. There's just something about about the
1: uh, about a procession. That,
2: well, and it's evangelization as well. You're a visible presence out into the world, as you right. said yeah. earlier, Father. It,
1: it brings Christ to the world. It brings him out into the public square, which was part of uh, Pius XI's concern that That Christ not just be pushed um, purely into the lives of individuals, but that he also be brought to society and help transform it for the good. Mm -hmm. And so processions are a a way of of making that visible and I think really can be a very powerful tool. I know there was a a Eucharistic procession recently in New York that got a lot of attention in Mm -hmm. the news, and um, I think people were just... Uh, startled to see such a thing in New York City, and and it caused people to ask a lot of good questions, and that can really be an opening then to the to the gospel reaching all sorts of people.
0: It's kind of an announcement of the the presence of the kingdom. I mean, in a in a very tangible way, um, especially since Christians don't have a a lot of other ways to. El- Outwardly identify themselves; like we don't have special dress or things like that. So, ex- other than, present company. For those <laughs> who can't see, I'm
1: wearing a habit at the moment. That's uh, pretty obvious. But uh, yeah, no, that's not the that's not the way for everybody. And, right. Uh, but processions are <laughs> certainly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I think this has really been great. Um, I, very good. Just kind of a good explanation for a lot of people about what this is all about. So, Father Schnackenberg really appreciate you taking time out of your morning to come and join us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. So we've been talking with Father Gregory Schneckenberg of the Dominican House of Studies about the Solemnity of Christ the King. I would also just say for other great resources from our Dominican friends, please do check out the Thomistic Institute. You can just Google Thomistic Institute. Um, They put on events on college campuses. They also have a lot of really great YouTube videos Um, encourage our listeners to check that out. I'm Aaron Weldon.
2: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.